How do we forecast bullpens when so many teams are doing it so many different ways? I'll ask Baseball HQ Bullpens columnist Doug Dennis about that and a whole lot more in the HQ Spotlight next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 26th. It's show number 8 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday News and Notes edition for you. We'll have our Market Watch Player News Reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Taiwan Walker, a whole bunch of moving parts in Colorado, closers in Washington and Los Angeles, and more. And Ray Murphy brings news from the American League, including a muddled rotation in Baltimore, a muddled bullpen in Seattle, and an expert's draft that, while not exactly muddled, definitely didn't go as planned. Of course, we'll have our HQ Spotlight with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, discussing the challenges of analyzing modern bullpen use, and we'll have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at Seattle prospect Jared Kellenick. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Kansas City outfielder Nick Heath. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about a Zach-based pitching zag. It's another Big Friday News and Notes edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The games are starting. we got to talk some baseball. Yes, it's Tawu. It's Tawu. The Grapefruit and Cactus Leagues kick off, if that's the right term, on Sunday with 14 games, seven each in Florida and Arizona. Only the Cubs and Mets aren't on the slate. The Grapefruit games start at 1.30 Eastern. The Cactus games at 3.30 Eastern time. I'll probably watch Toronto and New York, see what's going on early in the Blue Jays lineup, plus enjoy the usual earful from the old vets in the broadcast booth about how shifts don't work and wondering why all these kids are running around on their lawn. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report, and leading off, it's our National League News and analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back. Thank you, Patrick. We start our news in New York City. Free agent right-hander Taiwan Walker signed a two-year deal with the Mets. Phil Hertz covered this story for Playing Time Today. So where does Taiwan Walker fit into a suddenly interesting situation in New York? Well, New York's top three starters, of course, are Jacob deGrom, Carlos Carrasco, and Marcus Simeon. Marcus Stroman. Let me do that again. Yep. New York's top three starters, of course, are Jacob deGrom, Carlos Carrasco, and Marcus Stroman. Walker and David Peterson will slide in as number four and number five. Walker had a nifty 2.70 ERA in the abbreviated 2020 season, but it was obviously a very small sample, 53 innings, and his skills profile makes that uh, 2.70 ERA look very suspect. A 26% hit rate, 85% strand rate, leading to an ugly uh, XCRA nearly two runs higher than that. Uh, Other metrics also point to the back of the rotation, a 22% strike rate, strikeout rate, 9% 9% walk rate, uh, 13% uh, strikeout minus walks, and a BPX of 93. 
Yeah, BPX is a base performance value measure, and the base performance values uh, can be a little bit misleading because they're not scaled to 100, so they actually just scaled everything to 100. So a base performance index, BPX, of 93 is actually sub-league standard. 100 would be perfectly normal on the skills compendium, and uh, 93 is not good. <laughs> so no. Walker should get some help from pitching in City Field rather than wherever Toronto is going to be playing. But Phil Hertz also mentions there's an elephant in the room. Noah Syndergaard should be back sometime this season. Sometime in June or July is what we're hearing. Uh, then assuming a five-man rotation and no other injuries, Walker could end up competing with Peterson for the number five starts and regular appearances. Peterson had excellent results in 2020. That work supported by his skills, a 3.44 ERA versus a 4.93 expected earn run average and a woeful of 40 BPX. 40 BPX. Wow. Uh, you said that Walker was at 93, which isn't great, but 40, boy, oh boy, that's way down the skills index. Uh, BPX, BPV, they're based on a, pa- a package of skills, strikeouts and walks and contact and hard contact and those kinds of things. So when you add it all up, what you're looking for is over 100 and at 40, yikes. Um, and yeah, maybe yikes, the. Yikes. Yeah, and maybe the Mets might not be done dealing with it. We'll have to see what they do in spring training. Moving on, Nick, to Colorado. We've talked earlier about the Nolan Arenado trade, and now comes news that Ian Desmond is once again opting out of the season because of COVID concerns. So that seems to create a lot of moving parts in Colorado. Dan Marcus covered this story in Playing Time Tomorrow, Baseball HQ's roster forecasting feature. How will this lineup look when the merry-go-round stops? Well, there are three affected players at this point. Brendan Rodgers, Garrett Hampson, Sam Hilliard. Rodgers was once a top prospect and now in post-hype territory after disappointing stints in the big leagues. He hasn't had regular playing time and nor, nor very consistent in terms of his performance. But uh, after Arenado's departure, Ryan McMahon looks like he'll move from second base to third, opening a path to second base for Rodgers. We're projecting two-thirds of the playing time for Rodgers at second base Two to three dollar value with single digit home runs and stolen bases. Yeah, the bloom is off the rose on Brendan Rodgers for sure. But what about Hampson? He got a lot of playing time at second base in twenty twenty. And we're still giving him a good chunk of second base. Uh, but Desmond opting out clears the way for Hampson to move to the outfield, where he played quite a bit last season. That would create even more elbow room for Rodgers. Hampson projects to fifteen stolen bases and three hundred and forty eight at bats. So more at bats could get him to a speed level that would really help. Well, this is starting to feel like an Abbott and Costello routine, but what about Sam Hilliard, also an outfielder? Well, yeah, Hilliard could start quite a bit in the outfield. He wasn't great last season, only a two ten batting average, six home runs at 100 or so at bats. We're projecting 500-plus at bats, 28 home runs, uh, 16 bags, but just a 236 BA. Another possible source of competition is Harris Montero, a third baseman. He takes over the third base role, shifting McMahon, back off the position and back to second base. So that's a possibility if uh, Montero comes on strongly. And you told me uh, earlier before we started uh, on the show here that um, Montero, I had to say, is not a guy I'd actually heard of, but you said he's got a pretty decent track record in the low minors. He does indeed. I had won a uh, MVP award when he was playing in Peoria. So uh, a guy that might be sort of interesting, although I, I really not sure how, how much we trust that of those stats. Uh, but yeah, you know, he's got to get to get a shot in spring training. We'll see if he gets hot. And of course the Rockies organization is loath to, uh, 
ever let young players ascend to the big leagues without having paid their dues and been jerked around for years. So uh, even Elahiris Montero is really going to have to shine if he's going to get any playing time in Colorado, me thinks. Uh, what do we think the bottom line is here, Nick? Hard to say. It could go about 20 different ways. Uh, and besides everything else, we have to consider the Rockies' projected opening day lineup tilts very strongly toward left-handed hitters. Both Hilliard and uh, outfielder Ramel Tapia have platoon splits that mean they could sit versus the same-handed pitchers. So Colorado sits both of them against left-handed pitchers. Hampson could shift to the outfield to give Rogers more playing time at second base. Plus, Sam Hilliard uh, talked about in, in Stephen Nickrand's hitters to track in the spring, so there's something there to, to look at. Uh, hard to tell what could happen at, at the moment. A lot of A lot to track in spring training. Yeah, and it's one of those situations, isn't it, Nick, where sometimes, although you really love to have those Colorado hitters, of course, but you might just look at the situation and you say, you know, a pox on all their houses. I don't like any of these guys, although I have to admit the 236 batting average notwithstanding, I, I don't mind Sam Hilliard for the power-speed combination. If yeah, Sam Hilliard, looks, looks, Sam, Sam Hilliard looks sort of interesting. If he can get his batting average up to 236, uh, even that high begins to look interesting in terms of home runs and, and stolen bases. And at the risk of clouding the issue still further, uh, Matt Cedarholm says in his Market Pulse review of first baseman that C.J. Crone, who just signed with Colorado, could get some really significant playing time. Yeah, and he absolutely mashed in 2020, but you just have to ignore that. But if you go back to 2018 and 2019, uh, expected home run per fly around 24%. Uh, we, that's, that suggests a possible new power level for Crone. Uh, 25 to 28 home runs is likely, even if you only get 75% of the playing time. And you give him 500 bats and some skills consolidation, he could be an absolute monster. Uh, 20, 250 batting average, 20 home run floor with very significant upside. That sounds like a pretty good bet. He's currently going in the sort of 20th round area, but that's before he signed. Uh, I think probably look in the 16th, 17th, or even higher, especially if he gets off to a good start in spring training because there's lots of people who understand the value of a C.J. Crone. He's one of those guys that doesn't really draw a lot of headlines or anything, but he has proved to be a pretty useful producer in the past. Yeah, he has. And so I, I really like him in Colorado, especially when, when he's uh, – when. If you can manipulate your lineup and use him when they're playing at home, uh, certainly a guy to look at uh, in your draft. Well, a little later on in the show, Nick, I'll be talking with Doug Dennis, the Baseball HQ bullpens columnist, but I do want to ask you about a situation in Washington. Uh, Alanda Leonardis covers the National League East in playing time tomorrow, and he was looking at that bullpen in Washington, and, you know, I would have thought that Brad Hand was going to be a lock. They signed him in the offseason, bit of a hullabaloo about that. But Alanda Leonardis says, uh, maybe not. What am I missing? Well, Han was signed to a one-year contract, and he does figure to get most of the saves. So he's the guy they're going to be counting on. Very successful track record as a closer, coming off a four-year stretch in which he posted 103 saves, 2.61 ERA, 1.05 whip, and 231 in the pitch. Done it. Closer-worthy base performance values in the areas of 166 to 175. We noted in the 2021 forecaster that everything was not perfect. Expected uh, earned run averages in that span had been rising. 2.81, 2.83, 3.52, 3.53. At the same time, fastball velocity has dipped more recently. 93.6, 92.7, 91.4. Both of those are kind of troublesome trends. And moving away from the sinker last year made his fly ball rate uh, shoot up to around 57%. 
Some of those flies will come back down to line drives, only a 16% line drive rate, but lower velocity and higher launch angle in one of the game's better parts, that could be a bit worrisome. Yeah, and it's certainly no real absolute benefit if the fly balls revert to line drives because there's a few less home runs, but there's going to be more base hits. The line drives are convert to hits, I think, at something like a 70 or 75% rate. And so if you're, you know... If you're getting fewer fly balls, maybe that's you're swapping in cans of corn for smart, smartly hit balls that result in base hits. It might even be worse. Right. It might indeed. Yes. So, if we uh, if we think that Brad Hand might falter or you know just not get the job done in any way, who are the alternatives in Washington? Right-handed pitcher Daniel Hudson is the incumbent. Looks to share at least a part of the closing duties with Hand. Uh, really ugly. Ugly 2020 surface stats, uh, 6.10 ERA, 1.26 whip, and skills weren't any better. A 4.75 expected earn run average, 86 BPV. Uh, strikeout rate up to 30%, supported by a 16.4 swinging strike rate, but a 12% walk rate and a 57% fly ball rate, just as bad as, uh, as bad as hand. Uh, that's pretty dangerous. Uh, right hand pitcher Will Harris. Had a groin injury in July and might never fully recover last season. Uh, that might have led to a subpar, uh, subpar season. A 3.06 ERA, 1.70 WHIP, 11% walk rate, 89 BPV. Uh, and age is also a possible factor with with uh, Will Harris at this point. He's now 36 years old. Uh, he could enter the season as the preferred setup option based on his excellent track record. Uh, we believe he has enough left to pitch effectively, but not dominantly. Oh, projected stats are 3.46 ERA, 1.29 whip, and they reflect that that feeling about it. The most interesting option might be right-handed pitcher Tanner Rainey. Tanner Rainey emerged in 2020 as a true weapon out of the Washington bullpen. 2.66 ERA, 0.74 whip, 9% walk rate, 43% strikeout rate, 21.7% swinging strikes, 180 BPV. Now, the, the catcher is that was only in 20 innings pitched. So Randy could run away with the closure gig if he gets the opportunity, a forecaster upside of 30 saves. But right now he's no better than third in the bullpen pecking order, so things would really have to break right. Uh, in a redraft league, hands to still the favorite for saves might not be uh, what you're looking for as a round nine closer. Uh, Rainey, 417 ADP is really a dart throw by comparison, but that could be a dart throw that could reel some really interesting dividends, especially in a keeper league, a old league, a save plus old league. And speaking of bullpens, Kenley Jansen seems entrenched as the Dodgers closer, but, but Doug Dennis, I'll be talking with him later, but we want to talk about this Kenley Jansen situation right now. And Doug has some concerns. What's the story? Dave Roberts has already named Kenley Jansen as the closer. There was some skills erosion in 2020. Our current projections at this point for, uh, for Kenley Jansen are 59 games, 30 saves, 3.72 ERA, 1.03 whip. Uh, looks like a 152 BPV. So we're expecting that he will do all right. Uh, but watching spring training, you should want to see clean outings, especially later in the spring training. And you want to hear the Dodgers not hedging if he struggles. Well, let's suppose he does struggle, Nick. Uh, where are the upside gambles in that Los Angeles bullpen? Projections say it'll be a three-way race among right-handed pitchers Blake Trinan, Rustar Gratterol, and Corey Knable. Uh, Trinan has experienced closing, but that includes failing as a closer. Uh, Knable has also experienced closing, but he's returning from an injury. 
Uh, Gratterall has tremendous fastball velocity, but it's never translated into strikeouts, uh, and his 19% strikeout rate is a worry. Doug's advice was to watch and make sure the closure is still Jansen towards the end of March, and if not, be ready to bounce on plan B that emerges, whoever that could be, and be even quicker, it looks like it might be Knebel, who has an ADP currently of 613. Yeah, that's even past most reserve rounds, so that's a real dart throw depending on your format. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. It's been uh, very interesting and and helpful. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the news from the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go now to the American League Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back. Glad to be here as always, Patrick. We've got actual people in spring training camps. This is exciting. And yet very little news this week in the American League. Not a lot going on, uh, fairly minor stuff. So I thought, Ray, if you don't mind, we could maybe look ahead a little using the BaseballHQ.com playing time tomorrow columns. They cover all three divisions. uh, And Chris Olson covers the American League East. He kicked off this week's report talking about the Orioles' rotation. If something like this can be considered rotating, unless we mean like a chicken on a rotisserie, um, the Orioles are looking to build on a foundation of some reclamation projects, like a city park on a landfill. How is this supposed to work? Yeah, Chris put a lot of words on this, more words than I thought you could actually put into the Baltimore rotation. But there's, uh, you know, there are a lot of angles to cover, not many of them good, <laughs> but, you know, they still require coverage. Uh, you know, it's funny, we talked about the, the rogues gallery at the back end of the Tampa rotation last week. And, you know, this isn't all that different, except that it's the entire rotation, not just the back end, I guess is the difference. <laughs> they don't have, uh, you know, the couple of headliners at the front. It's just all the reclamation projects. Uh, and, you know, there's also a joke to be made here about, uh, you know, reuniting the, uh, I don't know, pick a year, the 2013, uh, 2014 good rotation headlined by uh, Matt Harvey and Felix Hernandez. But, uh, you know, let's talk about it a little bit seriously. What's the Beach Boys? This isn't a good rotation. <laughs> We're oh, you're gonna ra- make me spit out my coffee, PD. <laughs> <laughs> We're basing it reclamation. Uh, yes. <laughs> so we have uh, uh, we have John Means. We'll maybe talk about him up briefly. He's not a complete write-off. Uh, a lot of people actually like him as a bit of a sleeper. But meanwhile, we have Felix Hernandez, Matt Harvey, Wade LeBlanc in camp, and apparently in the running to join a six-man rotation which could accommodate all three of them, which might not be such great news. We'll talk about Harvey and LeBlanc in a second, Ray, but let's start with the former king of the mound, Felix Hernandez. Really? Yeah. Um, you know, released from, not brought back to Seattle after 2019, and, you know, you may remember that he actually signed with uh, the Braves around this time last year and was with the, in Atlanta for a spring training 1.0 but then uh I, I believe he actually ended up opting out of the season after uh after the shutdown but he's back again and uh has hooked on with the orioles and i guess is that uh that much needed veteran presence for the uh you know to show the young guys how to go about their business and all that stuff um yeah it's been a while since felix was king felix uh it's pretty bleak uh in terms of his recent uh recent metrics uh, you know he had a his last good ish season was a. Uh, uh, you know, 2016 when he hung up a sub four ERA and, you know, even amid the declining skills and bounced back a little bit in a short 2017, but then just 2018 and 2019 really just got that to, you know, 555 ERA in 18, 
uh, you know, 640 in 2019 in a shortened campaign. And then, you know, now coming off of, you know, having not pitched and going on two years at age 35, there's, you know, you really got to squint to find any reasons for optimism here along the, uh, among the declining skills, declining velocity, and now, and now rust, and now, you know, a bad team context around him. You know, he, he's, he's checking none of the boxes, I guess is probably the charitable way to put it. Uh, Chris did point out that Stephen Nickrand, our excellent starting pitcher's buyer's guide columnist, did point to Hernandez's 120 base performance value in 2019 from the first few starts that he had and a pretty good ground ball tilt, which maybe alleviates some of the concerns about home runs in that little park, but still. But still, yeah, it's like you said, I didn't mention the small ballpark. And you know, the best thing you can say about Felix is he's crafty and he's been working with declining stuff for a long time now um so maybe he's used to this but uh you know unless he magically discovered a couple of miles per hour or you know more than a couple given how far his uh velocity has fallen it's going to be a uh you know it's not going to be a, it's hard to imagine this ends well let's put it that way yeah, I was talking about this in the context of Kyle Hendricks with a friend of mine that uh, is also a fantasy baseball player. And he said, you know, why couldn't Felix Hernandez become that, you know, a, a masterful presence on the mound? And I thought about it, and the, what I came to the conclusion was, but Kyle Hendricks has always been that kind of guy. And if his Felix was going to try to become that kind of guy, he'd have to not He'd have to turn his back on being a powerball, high-velocity, do dominating type of pitcher and recreate his entire philosophy. And I think that's a different kind of row to hoe and a much more difficult one. I think that's exactly right. And as you say that, I'm kind of reminded of... Um you know, the later stages, Pedro Martinez, um, you know, I think one of the differences too is, you know, Felix, you know, he wasn't, uh, you know, he, he threw plenty hard, don't get me wrong, but he was never, you know, he relied more on his power than pinpoint control. He was always a three, three and a half walk per nine guy, even when he was good. So, you know, there was a certain, you know, he was not Greg, he was not Greg Maddox or Kyle Hendricks of command, you know, and obviously he didn't have to be because his stuff was that much better. Um, but didn't, you know, I somebody like Pedro, you know, sort of had, you know, is an all time great because he had both. He had the, you know, the, the pinpoint command and the stuff. And then, you know, when he got older, you know, thing, even when things were deteriorating in his, uh, you know, somewhat rounder Met stage, for instance, you know, see, there were some periods where he had success because, you know, he, he at least had that, what you're saying that, you know, the long-term pedigree of that, you know, pinpoint command. And I don't know that you can just pick that up, especially because, you know, as, as his getting back to Felix, as his stuff deteriorates, you know, he, he's going to get hit harder. It's not like you, when you're throwing 89, your solution could be, oh, I'll just throw all strikes. Cause what, what, what bad could happen then? Right. It's, it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah. Another big difference is Pedro knew when to get out and, um, yeah, know, that that's, uh, that's something that I know Felix said that he signed with Baltimore so that he could burnish his reputation when it came to hall of fame voting. I don't think he was in any trouble in that regard and if anything this could damage his candidacy you know if he throws a seven era season for half a year this year and just looks terrible the recency bias might actually hurt him in the hall of fame voting i i don't think this is a good idea at all but hey stranger things have happened another veteran trying to claim a spot in this rotation is uh matt harvey and again i have to say geez really yeah i, I have much the same reaction 
maybe you know to to a lesser degree you know, there there are a couple of things different about this that um you know make me marginally less willing to uh paint with the same brush uh, harvey's a little younger he's only 32 he, he still has some velocity he was throwing 90 you know he hit he actually ticked up a bit bit again to 94 last year um which isn't that far off of his peak, you know, back in his 2015, you know, dark night days, he was, you know, 95, 96. So, I mean, he's down, but not tragically. So as it, as in Felix's case, I was actually, I saw, I'm trying to remember what it was now. It was uh, MLB network or ESPN or something um, was doing a feature on Harvey in Baltimore and how he picked up. One of the reasons he signed with Baltimore was he picked up, analytics this winter and got into the whole spin rate and uh you know that that sort of thing and uh the the place he went to do that was in jersey and i guess one of the people who run it was affiliated with the orioles referred him into the orioles organization as a, as a team that did things this you know followed a similar methodology so he thinks that he you know, found something in January in New Jersey and can bring it to Baltimore in April. Um, he's not, you know, stuff wise, he's not as far gone as Felix, but yeah, I'm going to need to see, uh, need, need to see something before I am interested in jumping on this train. And Wade LeBlanc at the risk of repeating myself. Really? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I guess the difference between LeBlanc and these other two is LeBlanc never had any stuff. Um, so, <laughs> But he's uh, he's 36 now, and you know, Stabby, if you've heard this before, it's been a while since his last good season. Although he was you know, pretty serviceable back in as recently as 2018, he's never really been much more than a league average skills guy. But in 2018 and 27 starts, he hung up a 3.72 ERA with pretty respectable peripherals. Uh, he's gotten, I, I think, the, I think the clinical term is tattooed since then, um, with a 5.71 ERA in 2019, and then a ERA that actually started with an eight in uh, 22 innings last year. So, uh, you know, and, it, and now at age 36, uh, you know, there's not a lot of reason to think he can, can he, he can turn back the clock to 2018. But I, I, I think going with the theme we've talked about with so many other rotations, this is about building depth and having a lot of different options to turn to. And at some point in the course of this season, uh, they're going to turn to LeBlanc. And I, I think the commonality of LeBlanc, Felix, and Harvey is they don't worry, have to worry about babying these guys. They may have to worry about them getting crushed, but these guys are here to ma make sure that they have the flexibility to manage the innings for the younger arms that actually have a future. Which is a, a, actually an intelligent way to approach it. Well, we've talked earlier this year, Ray, about the effect of six-man rotations, especially on how much opportunity there is for everybody in it. Uh, reduced starts means reduced wins, reduced innings, all the way across the line. And it certainly seems that it ought to reduce the uh, interest that fantasy managers have in especially the one guy on that staff that might have been generating some interest, left-hander John Means. Yeah, you know, Means, you know, in another... You know, in, in regular times, might have been this might have been the year he graduated to be, uh, you know, something on the order of a 200 inning workhorse. You know, he's, you know, he hasn't been around that long, but he's actually 28 now. He emerged as a prospect kind of late, 
And, you know, we tagged him as a breakout target in the forecaster. He finished 2020 strong. Uh, but, you know, he threw 155 innings in 2019 and was you know, ready to become a 200-inning workhorse. But then, you know, the pandemic came, the short season came, he missed a little bit of time. And, you know, he only threw 44 innings last year. So you've got to think he's, you know, capped just like everybody, you know, so many other guys were talking about at, I don't know, we can quibble over what the number is, but it's probably around 160 or something like that, right? So that's, you know, the difference between 160 and 200 is 40 other innings that probably go to Wade LeBlanc or Matt Harvey or Felix Hernandez or, you know, insert name here. So it sounds like the bottom line for fantasy managers, if you're looking at Baltimore, means justifies the end of the search. (laughs) Well put, yes. There's a tiny bit of profit potential because people think Hernandez is washed up, but I I also think that the chances are he is washed up, and that if you're gambling on a late reserve pick or in a 50-rounder or something like that, and you think, yeah, you never know, why not? I still think you could probably do better. Uh, moving along to a more positive American League East pitching situation, Chris Olson also looked at a Toronto bullpen that was pretty strong last year, might be even a smidge better this year behind a new closer, right-hander Kirby Yates. Yeah, Chris took what I thought was a nice, nice angle on this piece. Uh, looking at Yates, he said, you know, obviously recapped the uh, pluses and minuses that come with Yates, which are you know elite skills when he's healthy. But when we last saw him, he was not healthy. So the question he's sort of asking here is, you know, if the elbow, bone chips, or some other uh, as yet unknown malady knockout Yates, where would the Jays likely turn to? This was a revolving door of a bullpen last year, but some of the players have moved on. So it's sort of a reset here. We know Yates gets the first spin at the closer wheel, but you know there's at least some concern until we see him throwing and holding up outing after outing that he may not be able to hold the job all year. So Chris ran through Jordan Romano, who was sort of the you know young breakout star of this bullpen last year until he also got shut down with a, uh, I think it was a finger strain that ended his season uh, last late August or September. Raphael Delis was imported uh, back from Japan where he spent the last few years uh, going over there and had developed some uh, some interesting skills. And he actually, if I remember correctly, actually ended the year with the closer role. Um, and he was pretty good th- throughout last year, graduating into that closer role. He had a 385 XERA, kept the ball down. You know, he's 33 or so, but, you know, sort of established that he could be a uh, at least a stand-in in the role. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, looking at the youth movement, the, the next guy to watch is probably Julian Merriweather. Um, they may be stretching him out as a starter this spring. It may be one of those cases where they just want to have him available for depth in case something happens to another starter, or maybe they want to groom him to be a multi-inning reliever or a swingman or start later in the year. But if he ever gets pigeonholed back into the back into the bullpen or a one-inning relief kind of role, he has the stuff to at least maybe get into this mix as well. So, you know, a couple of names that Chris recapped here to, uh, you know, to, either to think about if you're rostering Kirby Yates and want the handcuff, or if you're just looking for save speculations, uh, you know, later in your drafts or in, in dollar days. 
couple of other names that Chris didn't mention, but uh, that are worthy of just keeping at least in the back of your mind. Uh, Anthony Capritch pretty well. He picked up David Phelps in the off season. So they're definitely going, uh, it's not exactly a bullpen by committee, but it's a bullpen strength by committee. It gives the manager, Charlie Manuel, a lot of options in the late innings based on, you know, these kind of Tampa Bay around the clock pitching things and so forth. A pretty interesting situation. Um, Moving along, Matt Dodge covers the American League Central. His focus this week was on catchers. And starting with the White Sox, obviously, Yasmani Grandal, the big name here. Yeah, Grandal, this is not a case where there's you know job competition. It's Grandal's job. He's in, the, I think, second year of a big contract now. And it was a little disappointing in his first year in Chicago last year. But he's going to be right in the middle of this uh you know, retooled and fairly higher, highly powered offense. So, uh, and you know, Grandall's another guy who put, you know gets a fair amount of playing time. You know, even as a, in a non-catcher role, which which I'll get to in a minute. But um, you know, there, there's a good reason to think there's going to be a lot of counting stats with Grandall, especially. Any worry at all? Uh, Matt Dodge pointed to a career low 64 percent contact rate in 2020. Is that something that he's going to have to correct, or can he manage uh, with that low contact rate to still generate some stats? Yeah, that was really the biggest reason for you know the, what what ended up being a step back last year. Uh, but but the contact rate, the good news is, is it was kind of the only metric going in the wrong direction. His walk rate, his uh, batted ball splits, his power indicators—they were all holding close to his career norms. So you know whatever the reason that caused him to um, have the contact issues last year, if, if if he only has sort of that one hole to plug, and if he does, everything else should sort of snap right back into place. And keep in mind, it was a very small sample, and we can't say that often enough. And you don't want to let uh, a small sample affect uh, the bias that can be caused by uh, recency. Uh, Matt Dodge mentioned a couple of the backups, uh, Jonathan Rucroisenkamp, a guy named Sebi Zavala. But the really interesting name here, as far as Matt was concerned, was Zach Collins. Yeah, I'm pretty interested here, too. Matt tapped into something I'd sort of been musing about on my own. And so if you think about the way the White Sox are reconstituted here, both Edwin Encarnacion and James McCann have moved on. So that opens up the reason why we're talking about the backup catcher job to begin with, because McCann's not there. But the DH job is reopened with Encarnacion not re-signed. So Abreu goes back to first base. And like I said, this could open up some opportunities for Grandal to do more DHing, which he didn't really do last year because Encarn and Abreu were clogging that up, um, which means he can stay in the lineup more when he's not catching every on, uh, on every fifth day or what have you. But it's also an interesting opportunity for Zach, for Zach Collins because Andrew Vaughn, their you know first base prospect, is probably going to slide into that Encarnacion role as the first base DH tandem with Abreu, but he's not unlikely to start the season in the majors. He's probably going to get set down for service time reasons or seasoning after the pandemic lost minor league season, whatever, you know, so a little from column A, a little from column B, right? Um, but while Vaughn is down, you know, th- that opening could mean that Grandall and Collins tag team that DH and catch a job more. And Collins really is sort of a DH who occasionally puts on catch, catching equipment is probably the best way to describe his defense. But, you know, he was a former first round pick, 
all the way back to 2016. I think he missed a full year with injury at some point. So that's why he's a little bit delayed. Uh, but, you know, he hit, had a pretty good slash line he, with a 950 OPS in half a season in AAA in 2019. So he's got that high minors experience. He succeeded at the high minors. And this could be a case where he's so, he, there's this opportunity and he sort of forces his way into the lineup at least early on in the season, which I find kind of interesting. It is interesting. It's something to watch, not only for Collins himself, but as you mentioned, Andrew Vaughn is looking for a place to play. And if Collins comes out really bashing at the start and they feel like they're comfortable with that, they don't have any real uh, incentive to bring up Andrew Vaughn any earlier than they need to. And if, uh, as I said, if Collins is doing what they want Vaughn to do, then they can hold off on bringing Vaughn up. And I know that Andrew Vaughn's already appearing in some draft grids that I've seen. So uh, the expectation is he's going to be brought up, you know, as soon as he passes whatever service time deadline there is. But I don't know that that's as sure a thing as those owners would like to believe. That's right. And you know, Collins, paradoxically, is not really showing up on graph, draft grids, at least not till very, very late. One of the reasons is in most leagues, he actually does not bring catcher eligibility to start the season. So he'll need to get your 10 games behind the plate or whatever it is to qualify there. And it's not assured he will at all. He might, depending on whether they carry the Luke Croy or Zabala as the true backup catcher or whether they like Collins occasionally put the tools on and on grand dolls day is off. So he may not get the catcher eligibility, but like we were saying earlier, you know, the back kind of plays regardless. And even if he, you know, even if he doesn't stumble into a 10th game at catcher ever, or not till the summer, you know, like you said, there's a chance that, um, you know, the bat just puts him in the lineup and he stakes out the, you know, sort of takes that first mover advantage of the DH spot and, and runs with it. Cause the bat is good enough to do just that. And of course, in a lot of leagues, um, the eligibility is five games once the season has started. So he might reach that threshold early enough that uh, I think it makes him just a little bit more interesting as a reserve pick, or if you're in one of those 50 rounders and nobody wants to roster him because it clogs up the utility spot right away. I think there's some uh, sneaky potential here, we'll call it. And I think actually that's what Matt Dodge called it, sneaky potential. The other top six catcher projection, in addition to Grandal, on Matt Dodge's list is something of a bounce-back candidate, Twins' Mitch Garvers, coming off a dreadful 2020. Yeah, uh, this is a place where I've been doing a lot of speculating. I've gotten a bunch of Garver in my drafts so far. You're right, the 2020 was just dreadful, but it was also microscopic he had I, I forget what the number was exactly but it was like 40 at bats or something um and they were terrible of course but he you know then he missed most of the some the shortened season with an oblique uh that you, know, you really just knocked him out for you know the bulk of the season so you really can't do anything but sort of okay it was 72 at bats so it was a little more than i said but still still a microscopic sample and you know you, you really can't do much else than give him a mulligan um and when you want to give him a mulligan, you're giving a mulligan back to, you know, 2019 when he was absolutely fantastic. You know, he had 273 with 31 homers and, you know, 311 at bats, which is just half a season's work. You know, it was terrific. Um, and how much of that are you willing to throw away because of a, you know, 72 at bat injury riddled lost pandemic season? I'm I'm giving him a pass there. 
Me too. And uh, you called it an oblique injury. I think the new term du jour is uh, intercostal muscle strain. But I read an interview with Mitch Garver, and he said you can't really understand how difficult it is to swing a bat with purpose when you've got one of these core muscle injuries. He said every swing was like somebody stabbing him in the side, and it was really dreadful. And of course, he came back because he wants to play, wants to help the team, and you can't do it under certain circumstances with injury. And that's one of the circumstances that I think that we have to keep in mind when we're assessing uh, Mitch Garver. And I'm pretty sure he's fairly far down the catcher list that I've seen so far this year in experts drafts and in NFPC drafts, but I'm pretty sure he's going to start moving up as he, especially if he shows anything in spring training, like he's back to what he was even three quarters of 2019 makes him a, a star. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the discount right now seems to be, you know, he was like around seven, eight, nine pick last year in in ADP, and it's more like low teens now. You're getting like a five round discount on on him for the uh, you know for the lost season last year. And I was talking about this with uh, on a on, on another show last week. I think I was talking to Gray Albright from Rasball about it, and he was saying that he thinks some of the reason that. Uh, you know, Garver's price remains depressed is because of the presence of Ryan Jeffers, who, um, you know, is competing for the backup job with uh, Jack of all trades, Williams Astadio. Williams Astadio. Um, Jeffers is a highly touted prospect and certainly the Twins catcher of the future. The question sort of becomes, you know, is the future now or is that it's that classic? Is he better off catching every day in AAA for a while? Uh, he doesn't have a lot of high minors experience, but what Gray and I were talking about is that it seems like Jeffers may be getting treated by um, those people who are discounting Garver or the, the prospect wonks. Is Jeffers may be getting treated a little bit more ready than he actually is because he made it to the majors last summer when Garver was out. But you sort of have to remember, you know, but you sort of have to remember the circumstances there. Jeffers was on. The, it was at the alternate site because everybody took every catcher they had to the alternate site, right? Because nobody wanted to run out of catchers. But the Twins were the ones that actually came close to doing that because Garver was out with the intercostal. Williams Astadio had COVID. And uh, the only other catcher they had was Alex Avila, who is by no means an everyday catcher at, anywhere, at this point in his career. So they called up Jeffers, but that seemed to be, more to me, more of a, you know, out of out of necessity in case of emergency break glass kind of situation, then it was really a statement about what they thought about Jeffers' readiness to catch at the major league level. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him spend a big chunk of this summer at AAA work get putting putting in the time that he missed last year, assuming that Garver and Estadio are healthy and able to hold hold down the uh the four with the big club. Yeah, I think that's correct, but it was a very interesting and and notable debut at MLB. I think he had an OPS close to 800. I, I don't, it was very few at bats, like 30 or something like that. But still, you know, a lot of guys come up and their OPS in their first 30 at bats in the big leagues is like 400 or, or 350 or something like that. So he didn't look out of place with the bat. He had a 1017 OPS, I think in single A uh, last year, climbed up to double A around 900. This guy can hit. And of course the question is with catchers, there's also the defensive component of it, which maybe he needs a little more grooming. Um, I guess the bottom line here is that 
you got to like Mitch Garver a lot this year, and it's quite remarkable that he's not going as high as a lot of people, including us apparently, think he should. And uh, maybe there's a buying opportunity there, but it's going to probably run out sooner rather than later. Uh, and finally, I talked with Jock Thompson last week in the HQ Spotlight here at Baseball HQ Radio about his work. He covers the American League West for playing time tomorrow. And this week's coverage looks at well, if you have a muddled rotation in Baltimore, you certainly have a muddled bullpen in Seattle. I don't know which is more muddled. It's pretty darn muddled, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, as you sort of expect from a uh, Jerry DePoto run franchise, um, it's also not only is it muddled, but it's also completely retooled from when we, when we last to- tuned in last summer. He's, uh, you know, it, it was muddled last year. And, you know, apparently DePoto's answer to that was to sort of turn it all over and start over again. So, uh, you know, let's refresh on the muddle because today's muddle is not the same as uh, last September's muddled. Um, the, the new sort of the, the new acquired closer here is Rafael Montero, who they brought in from uh, the Rangers in a trade over the summer, or at least we think he's over the winter. At least we think he's the, uh, the closer. And maybe that's as much a statement about the rest of the bullpen and not being able to find closer candidates here. Um, Yoshishisha Hirano was, uh, um, you know, a stalwart in this bullpen last year or the last two years, I guess, and uh, might have factored into the season's mix, but he's decided to go back to Japan, which leaves Johan Ramirez, Anthony Masuitz, Keenan Middleton, who was brought up from the Angels. Maybe most interestingly, Kendall Graveman, who you might remember as a mediocre starter, but um, last year, um, spiked his velocity up to the middle mid nineties in shorter roles. It's one of those things where I, I don't remember the specifics, but he's got a, um, he's got an injury that sort of keeps him from going deep into games. Now I forget if it's a, um, like a rib cage thing or something like that. Um, but he, um, transitioned to the bullpen sort of out of necessity and spiked his velocity. Now he's throwing much harder, getting more ground balls and, you know, probably has as much, you know, potential career value as he has had at any point in his career now, as it looks like he's really settling into uh, what we're projecting to be a setup role here, but maybe a viable reliever role. And in the meantime, the muddle may continue into next season. Uh, The team seems to be wagering on some Tommy John recoveries, Uh, rookie right-hander Andres Munoz and former Houston and Toronto closer Ken Giles are both on the roster, but they're both not going to pitch uh, at least anytime soon because they're recovering from Tommy John. Yeah, Munoz was a uh, you know a radar gun darling when he was uh, coming up with the Padres. You know, I, I think he was actually contending with Jordan Hicks for uh, you know high, best fastball in baseball. And you know, when, and you know all about Giles. We've talked about him ad nauseum on the pod here. So yeah, they're taking a couple of lottery tickets and uh, looking to see if they can find a closer that they believe in more than Montero for uh, 2022, or maybe in Giles's case this September, I, I don't know that we're totally ruling that out, but uh, they're essentially off the radar for 2021 for practical purposes. I think the Mariners have already said that Giles isn't going to pitch. His Tommy John was last October, which would put it in September year, barely at 11 months. And I think the kind of the standard is 14, something like that. So uh, they're probably, and why would you? They're going nowhere fast. And why would you throw him out there to have his elbow before it's absolutely 100% right? And before you go, Ray, you and your co-general manager, um, Brent Hershey, had your FSGA draft the other night. You guys are the two-time defending champions, which is quite a quite a 
a great record. Uh, Brent wrote about this in the GM's office column, and he said, your draft didn't go according to plan because the table threw some curveballs at you. Yeah, that's what the table does, right? That's, yeah, that's, what uh, the, that's the name do. of the game. Is you, know, you you draw you know you draw a plan on paper, but uh, you know then you take it to battle and you adjust on the fly, and that's what we did. And it wasn't a case where you know it, it was more of a case where you know some things we expected to happen didn't, and we were presented with some options. You know, we quite honestly were not expecting to see. Um, you know, it, it's a to me, it's a reminder that the ADP data that we cite and that we have at baseball HQ from then our friends at the NFBC is born out of NFBC drafts. That's it's their data. It's good data. We love it because it's better than mock draft data because it's people who are paying money to draft real leagues and, you know, playing them all out and those sorts of things. So it's quality data, but it's not, it doesn't translate universally. And then our, our FSGA draft was a population, was a different population of people than the NFBC. And sure enough, they did things differently. One of the things that they did differently was let Trevor Story fall to you guys. You, I should say you were on the turn. You were in the 15 slot, and uh, I don't think you expected Trevor Story to fall. Yeah, Story's ADP was around 11 or 12, so we didn't really expect to see him at 14. We thought maybe, you know, we were talking about the likes of Freddie Freeman and Clay Ballinger and Bryce Harper, the guys whose ADPs fall in the, you know, sort of 14 to 17 range. But when Story fell down there, we took him. Uh, we thought we might get Trevor Bauer as our first starter, and we missed him by a pick or two. So we paired Story with Walker Bueller on the first turn, and getting one bat and one starting pitcher was what we wanted to do there. We thought we were going to take two hitters at 3-4 and then collects, collect another starter like uh, Kyle Hendricks or Carlos Carrasco or Hunjin Rue or Kenta Maeda, something like that, down at 5-6 as our second starter. But then there was a huge run of hitters in the third round working back to us for the 3-4 turn. And Brandon Woodruff, whose ADP should have put, should have put him at the 2-3 turn, fell all the way through the third round to us, and we just kind of couldn't pass that up. So he became our second starter at the 3-4 turn, and then we sort of broke another unwritten rule and took a second shortstop at the three, four turn. We took Tim Anderson to pair with story. So we came out of four picks with uh, two starting pitchers and two shortstops, which is you know sort of an interesting run at positional balance. But uh, we sort of spent the rest of the draft, uh, you know, adjusting the that and trying to round off the uh, smooth edges and that sort of thing. But it, it was an interesting start for sure. Uh, it's always interesting to talk about the players you don't pick as well as the players you do. When you got to the, the turn and you took Walker Bueller, you could have had you Darvish, you could have had Lucas Giolito, Max Scherzer was available. Why Bueller given the options? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there, there are a lot of layers to that onion. Uh, earlier last week when Ryan Bloomfield tweeted um, about the labor draft that he was in, uh, he picked Aaron Noah at roughly that spot. Um, and I sort of, I responded to him via Twitter that, you know, you take Nola, Giolito, Luis Castillo, Flaherty, Bueller. I have a real tough time separating those guys. Uh, Bueller, I think, is getting discounted mostly because of the depth of the Dodgers rotation and people aren't sure how many innings he's going to get. We haven't projected for, I think, 160 right now. And it's actually notable. We re revised our projections to sort of flatten them out to account for all of the workload management and six-man rotations this week. We don't have anybody 
projected for more than 189 innings at this point, um, which is the first time I can remember us ever doing that. Usually we have a handful of guys over 200, but we have nobody over, nobody even at 190. Um, so Walker, Buer's 160 is, you know, within shouting distance of the 180s guys. And I'm not so, I'm not as convinced that they're going to baby Bueller as much as some other people think. So from a skills perspective, we like Bueller more more than those other guys by just a tick. Um, and the the the, uh, the downside of that usually gets him pushed down a little bit relative to those guys is the workload concerns. But we we feel like the 160, 170 is, you know, you can take to the bank with him. And we really liked the uh, the, the skill profile you get for that. When I was considering it, Ray, I thought the only option that the only options were Giolito and Aranola, as you mentioned. Uh, Scherzer now at his age has to be considered a bit more of an injury risk than he has in years past, and Darvish is an injury risk based on his track record. I know he's had, you know, pretty good success the last couple of years, but in the back of your mind, you know that this guy has had injury trouble in pitchers and so forth. Uh, Brent's article about your draft said you guys were focusing on what Gene McCaffrey likes to call last year's bums, uh, two thousand. 19 guys who did real well then they kind of staggered in 2020 in the short season uh what was the thinking there was that very deliberate last year's bum strategy yeah it really was and it's really you know it's gene's philosophy sort of put on um put on steroids for 2020 2021 because of the short season i really feel like i wrote it in a preview piece i wrote for this draft on on monday that recency bias is a is sort of a battle we have in drafts every year which is why gene's last year's bump strategy is generally so effective but i feel like recency bias you know i was expecting it to be less prevalent this year because i sort of thought people would naturally devalue what happened in 2020 because of the short screwy season and i don't really see that happening if anything it's as bad as ever which is why we were sitting here you know we collected did um, Mitch Carver, who we talked about earlier in this draft, we took Patrick Corbin, uh, you know, who's a guy who um, you know has actually been pretty open about the fact that he just sort of never felt right last year after the start and stop spring training and all those sorts of things. But um, you know, was coming at a nice discount relative to last year. Joey Gallo is another one. You know, obviously he comes with a particular skills profile with the big power and lousy batting average, but we were sort of position with a batting average foundation where we thought, thought we could afford that. And Gallo, you know, is also being discounted for the lousy season last year. And you can go down the list and find more of these, uh, Danny Jansen, Hector Neris, who I think, you know, may end up being the closer in Philadelphia. Again, we took late, uh, Michael Kopech, who didn't pitch at all last year and certainly is going to be innings limited, but in round 24, you know, if we get a hundred innings out of them with, um, you know, anything related to related to what he used to be, then we'd be happy with that. So, you know, those are five or six guys, and we missed on a couple of other ones throughout the draft who we wanted. Uh, Chris Bryant, Josh Bell, we were, you know, we were very much targeting those guys um, who are, you know, sort of five plus rounds discounted from where they were going a year ago at this time, just because they had a bad or injury riddled or whatever 60 game two month season last year. Austin Meadows, one of those guys as well, I think. Oh, I for sure. Yeah, I'm, I missed him. But yeah, he absolutely falls on that list. I mean, he had, you know, I, I think it was the last week of spring training last year. He actually, uh, you know, went on the COVID list and took a couple of weeks to come back. And it was never the same after that. But, you know, who's, you know, <laughs> who has any trouble understanding why that happened, right? Oh, exactly. Uh, the thing about 
COVID in young people, as I've heard because I follow this story pretty closely, is that in older people, you get sick. Sometimes you get really sick, but you tend to get over it relatively quickly. Younger people get over it really quickly, but apparently they're much more likely to suffer longer-term effects, including a malaise type of thing, difficulty uh, with uh, muscle tone and that kind of stuff. So, you know, there's reason to be suspicious about anybody who had COVID, but at the same time, the athlete has a good constitution and so forth. I think those are good bets. Uh, last one, you took Will Smith at the 9-10 turn in your closer role. You could have had Kirby Yates or Kenley Jansen in that round. Why Will Smith over Yates and Jansen? Yeah, that might be one we had some morning after regret about. Uh, Brent and I were talking about that the next day and may not have the may not have been the right choice there, but you know it's so hard to discern the um, close the closers right now. We mo- we moved Smith up our projections at HQ after Melanson signed in San Diego and uh, seemed to leave one less competitor in the Atlanta bullpen. So I'm relatively confident that that is going to be Smith, but it's not a sure thing. And like you said, the other guys around him in that bullpen come with, in that range of the draft come with, uh, you know, Jansen and Yates come with, come with other questions, but you know, probably are more assured of at least starting the season with a job. I, I, I think the right thing to do is what we should have done and, and didn't accomplish was to, uh, if we took Smith at nine, 10, you know, 10 rounds later, we should have taken Chris Martin and we didn't do that. Well, it was an interesting draft. I think you guys are in good shape to defend your title. A lot of luck comes into it, of course, but uh, do appreciate you taking the time to talk about it and everything else. And look at this, uh, no news at all. And we still managed to fill up uh, close to 40 minutes. <laughs> it's Boy, fun talking baseball. Uh, right? <laughs> Imagine we had something to talk about, right, Patrick? <laughs> yeah, it is It is amazing at that. Thanks, Ray. Talk to you next week. You bet, PD. Ray Murphy is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and the co-general manager of the site, and he covers the American League here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's our HQ Spotlight segment, where we talk baseball with one of the staff analysts and writers at Baseball HQ. This time, it's bullpens columnist Doug Dennis, and he'll be coming to the plate in just a second. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Market Pulse, Matt Cedarholm goes bargain hunting for outfielders. In Facts and Flukes, performance analyst Mike Werner looks at five American leaguers, including Kevin Biggio, Brady Singer, and Alex Verdugo. And in the GM's office, Brent Hershey reviews Shredded Plans, Mulligans, and QBAB in the 2021 FSGA draft. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the big hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections. They're updated every day. There's daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers to help you during the season as well. So when you add it all up, expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues are why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business baseball hq radio 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our HQ Spotlight, where we introduce one of the staff analysts and writers at Baseball HQ. And it's my pleasure to welcome Doug Dennis, the Bullpen's columnist. Doug, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, this is a Baseball HQ Spotlight, and I like to ask the guys uh, how you got started at the site and how long you've been with the site. So, wow. I got started back in 1998, I want to say, and I had spent years before that um, really emailing back and forth with uh, John Hunt, who at that time was uh, doing fantasy baseball for USA Today. And I also was emailing back and forth with Rob Nyer, who was at ESPN. Um, I say emailing because that was before most of the internet and and things like that, or at least I didn't have access to that stuff. And they both kind of simultaneously suggested that Ron Chandler was looking for writers and I should should call him. So I did. He said, send in a writing sample. And and so – this, uh, this actually answers another one of your questions. How did I get into bullpens? Um, I, I figured the best way I could I could have an effect with Ron Chandler with a writing sample is to talk about um, closers because nobody liked talking about them. So I wrote um, I wrote an article about bullpens uh, and the rest is history. Been there ever since. How do you think your expertise in bullpens affects your draft strategies because bullpens and how to manage the closers versus the setup guys and all of those kind of things uh, matter in modern fantasy baseball. You're really good at bullpens. Does it affect how you think about them when you're in a draft table? It, it, well, first, let me just say there is no expert in bullpens because you could be right today and, uh, you know, this morning and wrong by two in the afternoon over and over and over. That's the one thing about writing about bullpens is it's very humbling. Um, because things change so fast, but um, I I tend to I tend to not worry as much maybe about what I'm doing or being as rigid with um, my strategy with uh, closers as probably most most people that I that I know. Most people have a very strong strategy going in of I'm going to get this really elite um, closer, or I'm not going to get closers. I'm going to pick through what's left over in the late part of it. I don't really go into it that way. I just sort of go into it with um, with an idea of what I think people are worth for their risk, and in particularly for closers, and then I just sort of let it let it go that way. I'm I'm not really a Zen like person, but with relievers, I feel like that's the only way I don't have a heart attack. You talk about the risk of closers, and it makes me wonder: Have you ever seen any research that shows? how likely a closer is to keep the job, What, uh, how often the turnover is, any statistics along those lines? Yeah, I've done research like that, um, partic- and it's changed. So I wouldn't count on the research that I did, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. But typically speaking, the, the closers who have the best skill sets are the ones who obviously are the ones who are most likely to keep their jobs. I know that's not rocket science. But um, it's amazing to me how um, often people say, well, this guy's been a closer for eight years. It's like, well, actually, he's only been a closer for one and a half. He's been pretty bad. And there's a guy behind him who's better. I'm thinking there's a lot of risk there. You know, it's not a it's not a real surprise. Um, I, I honestly, I you know, th- that old research 
that I went through, you know, was asking the question, how long, how, how, how do um, closers go year to year and stay a closer, you know, and if they don't have, you know, really just about the best skill set in that bullpen, they often get replaced and, or, or, you know, slowly get replaced. Like they may start the year as the incumbent, but by June, you know, they're giving way to somebody who's, who's got a better skill set. Um, the only exception to that over a prolonged period of time, at least at the time I was doing that research, was uh, Jose Mesa, which is kind of hilarious because he was bad and then bad again and then bad again. But he just had 30 saves like three years in a row. So sometimes it's about who's around you, too. Yeah, I bet a lot of the listeners are surprised because I am. It seems like every year I look at bullpen situations in Major League Baseball and I think there's at least two pitchers in this bullpen who have much better skills than the guy who's closing games. And yet the team doesn't seem to, to care and they're going to stick with this guy. And it, it's more with certain managers than certain other managers, but you're a true believer that skills went out. Well, it was certainly more true back when I was doing that research. That's why I'm saying it's a little different nowadays because I think teams are looking at leverage in a little more sophisticated manner than they used to where they used to think, you know, the save itself was the highest leverage possibility. Um, and they would save their best guy for that. And nowadays, I think they look at leverage at any time in a game and say, you know, here's the best guy for this situation. I'm throwing him in there. And some teams like the Rays and now much more so the Twins, um, they don't even care. They're just like, okay, this is the time I need Nick Anderson. He's going in the game. Um, and if I don't need him, then then he can pitch the ninth. And so you you know you're seeing this evolution slowly occurring. Um, and I say evolution, but really it's kind of heading backwards to what things were like uh, back when I was growing up, where there were two or three really you know excellent relievers in the bullpen and nobody else, and those guys would would you know would switch off depending. But I think they're more sophisticated in how they're using them today than they were back then. Do you think that they're getting more sophisticated about just generally getting the better pitchers more innings in total? Yes, yes. I used to be outraged by the fact that Eric Gagne would have, say, a 1.6 ERA. I'm making this up, you know, but a really low ERA. And he would pitch 65 innings. And I'm like, why? Why isn't he pitching 90 innings? It makes no sense, you know. And I think teams are looking at that and they're saying, you know, I need – I need this guy when I need him and I need him, you know, with a guy at second and less than two outs and a big hitter coming up. So he's going in and, you know, and then if he gets that guy out, then maybe he goes out there for another inning after that. And so, you know, you're getting more out of that pitcher than just getting that really big out. You're getting, um, you know, you might be getting two and two and a half innings. You see this with guys like um, Josh Hader right now, but, um, Really, um, like Wade Davis did that for a long time for Kansas City, and um, Dallin Batansis did that for the Yankees with with great effect. And I think, uh, you know, the fact that you're closing or not closing games is much less important than it was even uh, ten years ago. Yeah, the problem is uh, much less important when you're playing real baseball, and much still much more important when you're playing fantasy because of the emphasis on saves. Well, of course, of yeah. course. That's what makes this. That's what makes it so challenging. And that's part of the fun. Uh, 
You know, Doug, when we look back at old-timey guys, uh, Al Spaulding I saw one day through 500-plus innings a couple of times in the 1800s, uh, but Justin Verlander, Roy Halladay, 250 innings plus within the last 10 or 11 years, and I think we find that generally pretty weird. How long, if ever, do you think it'll be when baseball fans look back at closer usage nowadays and find it weird? Oh, I think they already kind of do. I mean, when you think about a guy whose only job is to get three clean outs and you're never used for any other purpose, I mean, that's kind of weird, right? Like even at the time it was kind of weird. And now we look at it and go, why would you, why would you do that? Like there's so many times in a game that you're losing the game because you didn't use that guy. And, you know, you'd see that in the playoffs. It's like, Oh, I got to get him in the game. I can't not get him in the game. But uh yeah, I think that's already happening. I think that um, I just think we have a proliferation of more great pitchers who can throw short stints. And I don't mean one inning. I mean, two or three or four innings um, with a hugely great effect uh, today. And I think that 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 really was not the case even uh, 10, 20 years ago. Was it not the case 10, 20 years ago because they couldn't do it or because nobody thought to ask? Um, I think they couldn't do it. I don't think th- I think that that um, the sophistication in developing pitchers has grown exponentially. And I think, uh, you know, a tiny part of that might be due to metrics and, and measuring things. But I think mostly it's due to these quantum leaps in um, creating good mechanics and getting more velocity and having good um, dietary plans. And, and having a cycle of an entire season, kind of the way that uh, cyclists do to get ready for the Tour de France. I mean, it's really much more those types of things, I think, than anything. And so a guy who would have been a mediocre, maybe, you know, quad A guy 20 years ago, he might be a hundred mile an hour flamethrower getting eight guys out a game uh, these days. So it's, it's, it's changed a lot. Well, let's talk about some closers in fantasy for this season. Uh, Doug, I've seen Liam Hendricks go as high as the fourth round in experts' drafts. Uh, we've seen Aroldis Chapman, Josh Hader going five, six round type of thing. Brad Hand, Kirby Yates, ninth and tenth. Matt Barnes and Giovanni Gallegos down in the 18s, 20th round. I've also seen lots of fantasy managers just holding off and throwing darts, sometimes way later in the draft. How are you approaching closers in this year's draft? Well, I think I'm not really changing my approach. I, I very, very rarely would ever think about getting a, um, a Hendricks or a Hater or, a, you know, those types of guys. Um, but if they fell, you know, significantly, then I would consider it. Um, but there's a sweet spot, I want to say, right around, I don't know, in the picks between maybe, um, you know, 140 and 160, where a whole bunch of uh, closers are kind of, or quasi-closers are going. Um, and so if you pick the right guy in that area, you might, you know, you might be right in there with the, you know, the, the top uh, closers. I'm, I'm not really aiming at that area. I, I have, um, I've had two um, drafts so far and in one of them, I took a really, I took, I actually took, um, Edwin Diaz, which is something I never would think I would do, but I did. And then I paired him with a guy who was very late, um, Daniel Bard, which I'm already regretting. So, you know, you just don't really – I don't really go into it knowing what I'm going to do with closers the way I do with hitters or with starters. So I am um, I may not be the best person to ask for strategy. Sometimes uh, 
sometimes I don't get what I want and, and I'm not happy about it. But uh, I'd rather do that than waste a high pick and have the guy lose his job right away too. Yeah, that's the risk, all right. Uh, and that brings me to the question of which closers in this year's drafts do you consider locks to have the job, but more importantly, to keep it? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, you know, so I love Edwin Diaz. I've always loved Edwin Diaz. I think he is a guy whose skill set is just top shelf. But he has hit some ruts, and um, and, and it's it's not always been, you know, the smoothest ride. And so... You know, Araldis Chapman, there's a guy who's always going to be your closer when healthy, but he seems to miss um, some time every single year. Um, so, th- you know, that's those are good examples of why, you know, there's risk there. Um, Hendricks looks awfully good um, with the White Sox for this year. But, man, I'm mindful of the fact that uh, Oakland had had another closer right before him who, um, who went uh, and, and, and just – you know, spit the bit the very next year. It's it's kind of amazing how how fast it can turn. So who is the guy without any risk? I don't know if there's anybody without without any risk, but those are, you know, the 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 guys who are going early are obviously the guys who have the lowest risk. And that would be Hendricks and Hayter, you know, and and Chapman. I, I'm surprised to see um Rysel Iglesias as high as he is going, but I do think he's excellent, and I do think he's really kind of unchallenged for the Angels. Um, those are guys at the top. I love uh, Karinchak for the Indians. His strikeout rate is is absurd. Um, I think he could end up being the best closer of the entire um, league this year, and he's going later than those names I just named. So those are the top guys, I think. There's also an element when you're analyzing this of, is there an heir apparent? I think that's something that fantasy managers should be taking a close look at because, you know, if if you're in a situation where the closer's the one guy with really good skills in the bullpen or really dominant skills and there's nobody behind him and he falters a little bit, the manager doesn't have an easy out to go and say, oh, this guy's making me nervous. I'm going to go to option B or option C because I have all those options. And some bullpens are deeper in that regard than others, and I think that's something else that uh, fantasy managers need to at least be aware of. Yeah, I think, uh, and this goes back to our earlier part of the conversation, which is that most teams now don't have just one dominant guy and they just kind of hope and pray for the rest of the bullpen. Most managers nowadays have two or three guys that they really can think they can count on, and so they're not um, shy about pulling the trigger if they need to move things around. Are there any teams, Doug, that don't have any clear closers as we go into spring training? Oh, yeah, I think so. I would say uh, Detroit uh, certainly does not have a clear closer. I wouldn't consider Brian Garcia to be anything. And, um, you know, you actually see him going late in in drafts as a result. That's not a surprise. I think Philadelphia has uh, a whole uh, stable of guys, um, but there's no clear-cut guy out of that group that I would say is the closer for them um i think cincinnati is kind of feeling their way through roles and what they want to do i don't think they are set on who they want um san francisco uh though um they just announced jake mcgee is the guy so that was interesting um i don't know that i believe them but that's uh that's where they're going um and you see the huge bump in uh, drafts as a result of that news so maybe he'll start out that way and we'll see how it goes 
Um, there's nobody clearly um, competing with him, though, so I can understand why they say that. Um, Colorado, I don't know. I think Scott Oberg is a good uh, good person to look at there um, behind Daniel Bard or maybe right next to him at this point. You know, it's very fluid this time of year, and a lot can happen between now and opening day, of course. The thing to remember is a lot can happen between opening day and uh, May 1st, too. So uh, it just always kind of stays that way. And teams kind of come and go out of this category of who, who's the clear closer. And, Doug, if I press you to give us one late round flyer in each league, you think could end up, if not with the closer role outright, maybe a good sized chunk of saves that's going in reserve rounds or ADP 600 or, you know, you know what I mean. Well, I really, I mean, I just mentioned Oberg. I think that there's a very good chance that by opening day, he's the closer for Colorado. He shows he's healthy. He's got his velocity and command back, which he should. Um, He very well could be that guy. And um, I'm, you know, it's weird. I'm very partial to um, Jordan Romano. And, of course, he's behind Kirby Yates. Kirby Yates is an amazing elite skill set. So if he's healthy, you know, Romano's not going to be that guy. But if uh, if he gets even a sliver of a chance, Romano has a great skill set and could take over and be be that guy. So those are two guys that I really like um, that, that are per- going uh, pretty late. I mean, I think Romano's probably going a little earlier than uh, than he will be, say, two weeks from now um, if, if, if Yates, you know, continues to show that he's healthy. I like Jordan Romano, too, partly because of the skills and partly because you can't count on Yates to stay healthy, even if he looks healthy, coming out of spring training. And uh, finally, Doug, uh, you just had a column come out called Five uh, Bullpens Worth Watching in Spring Training. Uh, one of them was Atlanta, where you think they're, they're going to kind of do a hybrid situation with Will Smith and Chris Martin. How should we play that as managers? Well, I think they're both uh, worthy skill sets to own. You just have to, 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 you know, buy them at a price point that, that takes into account the idea that they're not going to be the primary closer for the entire season. They'll probably split saves. Um, now, you know, it could be that uh, Will Smith, you know, just, just gets it and runs with it, but I doubt that because – Chris Martin is 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 at least as good a skill set, and he's right-handed. And you really would like to see if you're, um, you know, playing those leverages the way we were discussing earlier. You really want to see Will Smith get in there when you need that left-handed uh, pitcher to get out those key guys. So um, I think they'll use them uh, flexibly, and I think that their um, save totals will be reduced um, accordingly. And you just have to take that into account for your price point. And depending on the depth of the league you're playing in, it might not be a bad plan to try to get them both. You get all the saves, and plus uh, the guy who's not getting saves is still getting a really terrific decimals usually. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you get them both, if you can manage to do that and not spend too much, and it turns out that one of them is owning the role, then you can, of course, uh, you know, get rid of the other guy and pick up somebody else. I mean, that's uh, that's the beauty of this game is that these things change all the time, and that uh, and you got to be ready and get the next guy up and try to improve improve your team during the season. 
And we talked earlier about teams that are trying new things or different ways of going about it. At Tampa Bay's probably the poster child for that particular concept or philosophy. They've been mixing and matching in the bullpen. A lot of guys get saves. I think uh, Jason Collette, who covers Tampa pretty closely for a, a bunch of sites and talks about them on Twitter a lot, I think he said they had 11 or 12 guys get a save last year or, or in 2019. So that they're willing to spread it around. Yeah, they're unconcerned about who gets a save. Their only concern is um, who is the right pitcher to have in the game for this batter in this moment. And, um, you know, when there's not a lot of leverage, then they're not as worried about it. And when there is, there are they are very careful about who they're using. And they have, uh, you know, they're just very sophisticated. And teams are noticing this and they're noticing the success that they're having at shortening games. And so I think you're going to see more and more teams do this. And so it's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? Because you look at Nick Anderson and with 38% strikeout rate, 7% walk rate, I think something like that. And yet, in the scheme of things, if you don't believe he's going to get the 30 saves that a frontline closer gets, you really have to devalue him somewhat and start thinking about, again, a handcuff with Diego Castillo. Peter Fairbanks has pretty good skills. might be interesting, but you've only got so many roster slots. How are you playing that Tampa Bay situation? Yeah, I mean, Nick Anderson has as good a skill set as anybody in the league. I mean, he's just a phenomenal um, skill set. and But he's not going to have, you know, the massive number of saves for the reasons you said. I mean, I'm much more interested in a Peter Fairbanks at his price than I am in, in really anybody else in that bullpen. I think Peter Fairbanks is going to be a great, great get for – for owners, there's no way to own all the all the Tampa saves though, and 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 play them. I mean, it's just there's no way. So you just have to look at that for what it is and say, okay, well, if I get uh, 15 saves and a great ERA WHIP and and strikeouts, you know, from a closer, is that gonna what's that worth? You know, is that gonna be something that works for my roster? It's all about your your whole pitching step, right, and what and, and how it all fits together. So there's there are teams that that's going to work really well for. And of course, you have to keep in mind that even if Nick Anderson is terrific, we're only projecting him for less than sixty innings. In fact, and Castillo and Fairbanks just over sixty innings. It would sure be interesting if they decided, you know, we're going to give each of these guys ninety innings because then they have uh, achieve a whole new range of value. And of course, in save plus hold leagues, they add a lot of value as well. Yeah, and I think uh, I think if Tampa had to, they would give them 90 innings, but they're hoping that their starters are better than that. And I think what's happened over the last year is their starters had a really good year last year, and so they didn't need their relievers as much, whereas other teams were going in the other direction. But, you know, in the years where uh, Tampa um, is, you know, using – you know, an opener and then some bulk guys and, and you know, that, that ups the overall uh, relief innings for, for the team. And so, you know, you're never going to see Nick Anderson being a bulk guy or an opener, but um, it does, it does put some pressure on his part of the bullpen um, when those other guys get used up um, if they're still um, high leverage, you know, so it's, it's an interesting uh, – they're very interesting in the way that they deploy their pitchers, and I think that teams are studying this, and you'll see more of it. I think you're exactly right, and frankly, I can't wait because I think it'll maybe press – 
the uh, institution of fantasy baseball to start relooking at the saves category, which I've always hated uh, because of the <laughs> because of the you know the influence of of manager choices, which are often dumb and frustrating, and makes makes you pull your hair out uh, by the roots because you know they you know that they're doing it wrong, or you very strongly suspect that they're doing it wrong, and of course there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, Doug, this has been super interesting. Remind our listeners how they can keep up with your work. Yeah, so I write one uh, bullpen column a week for Baseball HQ. We've just started up uh, again recently. Mine show up on uh, Sundays. Uh, this week I write about um, Lima um, skills filters and, and some relievers that fit under that. And you can also follow me on Twitter at DougDennis41. I have to ask, why 41? Because when I was a peewee football player when I was eight – um, the, the shirts that were in the basket to pick from, I got, I got given 41. And so that has been my lucky number ever since I was eight. And, um, and it's really worked out for me every time I have uh, the number 41, uh, good things happen. So you try to, do you try to do your Kentucky Derby selection so that you'll get picked 41, whatever, like the third round? I, uh, I try to do anything that I think is luck based, um, involving the number in some way. Absolutely. I hope we get you 41 more times, uh, probably not in one season, but over the life of Baseball HQ Radio, you're a terrific guy to talk to in this context and just socially and always a lot of fun. I do appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much. Yeah, well, I love being on, so of course I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to do it. Thank you, Patrick. Doug Dennis is the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And hey, before we roll ahead, I just wanted to let you know about our next show, another Two Tout Tuesday edition, featuring two of the industry's best and brightest. Jason Collette from Rotowire joins us, as does Derek Van Riper from The Athletic. That'll be Tuesday coming up here on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now we have our regular HQ commentaries right around the corner. The Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Extra Innings all next on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular commentaries. The Frequent Flyer and my Extra Innings comment are coming up. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Seattle prospect Jared Kelenic is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Jared Kelenic, the number four prospect in the 2021 HQ 100, was in the news this week following comments made by former Mariners GM Kevin Mather, who not only made disparaging comments about the language skills of international players, but was also surprisingly blunt about the organization's effort to manipulate player service time. Kalanick responded to those comments by claiming that he was being punished by the Mariners for not agreeing to an early contract extension similar to the deal signed by Scott Kingery, Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, and others. Given those comments and Kalanick's reaction, it will be interesting to see what the club does with him in 2021. In fairness to the Mariners, Kalanick has had just 663 professional at-bats and only 83 at AA, but the results have been impressive and the 21-year-old owns a career slash line of 290, 366 with a 516 slugging percentage, with 31 doubles and 23 home runs. Kellenick is a true 5-tool talent with 60-65 to 65 grade tools across the board. At the plate, he has a sweet left-handed stroke with plus bat speed and plus in-game power. He does have some swing and miss to his approach, but is also selective enough that he should be able to continue to hit for averages and moves up. Defensively, Kellenick covers a ton of ground in center field with a plus arm and gets great reads. 
Long-term, Jared Kelenic has the tools to impact the game on both sides of the ball and enough speed to be a 20-20 or even a 30-30 player at his peak. He also draws enough walks that he could hit at any of the top three spots in the order, making him a must-have in long-term keeper formats. For fantasy managers in redraft leagues, Kelenic could start the year at AAA, but he should be up by late April, and along with Kyle Lewis, gives the Mariners the makings of an exciting young outfield. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Minor League's Analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ Scouting Team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Speaking of scouting this week at BaseballHQ.com, our positional prospect previews are underway, including Rob Gordon's review of third base prospects. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who will be available in the latter part of your draft and have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Kansas City outfielder Nick Heath is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Well, it might be easy to overlook 27-year-old Kansas City Royals outfielder Nick Heath. It might not be that easy to catch him. (laughs) In two seasons, 2018 and 2019 respectively, This speedy Royals outfielder, Nick Heath, stole 99 bases. That's 99 steals in two seasons while registering 60 of those stolen bags through two levels of the minors in 2019 alone. Wow. Plus, in the abbreviated 2020 season, Nick Heath stole two bases in 15 games for the Royals. Not bad. But Nick Heath only connected for two hits and only 13 at-bats in those 15 games, batting 154 in 2020. Not good, but a small sample size. Let's face it, 13 at-bats in 15 games, or less than one at-bat per game on average, isn't exactly a rigging vote of confidence. And let's not forget that Nick Heath has only played in 21 games at AAA, perhaps punching his ticket back to AAA Omaha after spring training. That's why Nick Heath, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available late in your draft. Even so, Nick Heath's 60 stolen bases in 2019 is difficult to ignore, and the Royals have consistently finished in Major League Baseball's top 10 in stolen bases for over a decade, finishing second in 2019. In other words, this team is consistently built for speed. Yet finding playing time for Nick Heath in Kansas City's suddenly crowded outfield might be challenging. But from a skills perspective, consider this. There's a lot of hype surrounding Chicago White Sox second baseman Nick Madrigal going into the 2021 season, especially with his speed and his ability to steal bases. But from a skills perspective, according to MLB's StatCast, Fleet-footed, former frequent flyer Nick Madrigal clocks in with a sprint speed of 28 feet per second. Impressive. Comparatively, Kansas City's Nick Heath clocks in at a close 27.9 feet per second, only a fraction of a second, or more specifically, a fraction of a foot per second, slower than Nick Madrigal. Certainly it would be a close foot race. Fun to watch. Any bets? <laughs> Nevertheless, BaseballHQ.com's Matthew St. Germain in the July 29, 2020 edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com pointed out in describing Nick Heath that the Royals have found great success with this profile, so it should be no shock that they got themselves another plus-plus athlete with plus-plus speed and super raw baseball skills. 
So maybe you too will find success with another plus plus athlete with plus plus speed and super raw baseball skills in 27 year old Kansas City Royals outfielder Nick Heath as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about a Zach-based pitching zag. Regular listeners of the HQ Radio pod will know that we've been talking a lot these days about the applicability of the new draft strategy to take starting pitchers way earlier than we used to. There's pocket aces with both top round picks, two pairs with two hitters and two pitchers mixed into the first four rounds, and the full house with three starters and two hitters in the first five, and so on. And of course, the poker analogies continue with the straight flush, when you realize what a mess you've made of your draft and dunk the whole deal into the crapper. From the first time I heard of it, I was reluctant to go along with this starter's first approach. This was not a carefully calculated reaction to the relative strengths of hitting tiers versus pitching tiers, or anything profound like that. The thing is, I just don't trust starting pitchers. I'm a believer in the idea that I want to avoid risk in those top picks, and to me, Every pitcher is an elbow ligament away from killing my draft. And yes, I know that hitters fail too. Ron Chandler has shown time and again that top round, top dollar picks fail to return value way more often than not. Now, when you think a lot different from the crowd in any market, there might be opportunity. Like when you see value in the shares of a nearly bankrupt bricks-and-mortar video game retailer in an age of pandemic and online gaming. You can get rich if your timing is right. With that in mind, I've been wondering how best to zag while the fantasy draft markets lean into the zig of top-round pitching. I've considered the Baseball HQ Santana plan, in which you draft one top skill starting pitcher early to set a foundation for some good innings with good decimals and lots of strikeouts, then mash away on hitters for the next seven or eight rounds to bully that part of the game, and then pick up the pitching more in the middle and towards the end. I've also considered just waiting until the fifth or sixth round to even begin gathering starting pitching, and try to find underappreciated guys whose skills present a lot of upside. This idea also takes into account that there's way more pitchers in the free agent pool later on than there will be hitters, especially good ones. In a recent experts draft, the 5th through 8th rounds had starting pitchers like Sonny Gray, Corbin Burns, Max Fried, Lance Lynn, Kenta Maeda, Jose Barrios, Carlos Carrasco, Ian Anderson, Jesus Lazardo, Hyunjin Ryu, Kyle Hendricks, Denelson Lamette, Framber Valdez, Chris Paddock, and Charlie Morton, as well as the Zacks, Grenke, Plesak, and Wheeler. Are these aces? No, not on paper anyway. Are there questions? Lots of them. But it's still 18 pretty playable pitchers, many with established track records and more than a few with some intriguing upside. And then if you go down to rounds 14 through 17, you'll see Marcus Stroman, Dustin May, another Zach, Eflin, James Paxton, Herman Marquez, Corey Kluber, Tyler Malley, Aaron Savali, Chris Bassett, Christian Javier, Eduardo Rodriguez, Jamison Tyon, a couple of ace-level Tommy John returnees, Chris Sale and Noah Syndergaard, Sean Manaya, and Nathan Eovaldi. That's 16 more starting pitchers. Then you can throw in some end-game darts like Justice Sheffield, Matt Boyd, big pitch mix change, John Means, and another Zach, Zach Davies. 
And if you put it all together, I think there's a strategy here. Could it be an all-Zacks pitching strategy? I guess we'll find out. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number eight of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyers commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I also want to thank our HQ Spotlight guest for this Friday News and Notes edition, Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, is a top-notch fantasy baseball analyst and player, and he's just a great hang. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when the new podcasts are available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to wherever you catch your podcasts and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review, good rating. That helps us find new listeners, and that makes the boss happy. Keeps the podcast going. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with another Two Tout Tuesday edition featuring Jason Collette from Rotowire and Derek Van Riper from The Athletic. That's all coming up on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.